My name is Max Gagliardi, and you're listening to the Talk Energy Podcast. If you're watching this video, take a moment, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, or you can follow me on your favorite podcast app, leave a review, that would help the channel. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to our company's weekly newsletter, Ancova Energy, uh, we cover the energy markets every week. We put out pricing data, weather data. We do write-ups about what's going on, uh, all the crazy world events right now. Uh, We won't spam you. We do put it out once a week. Uh, Go ahead and check that out on Substack. This episode's sponsored by my friends over at the Digital Wildcatters and their Fuse event coming up here in Houston on October 26th and 27th. This is not your typical energy industry event. I would characterize this more of like an energy festival. They've got multiple venues blocked off for this. It's like an outdoor event. Uh, I went to their Empower conference last year. It was incredible. The team over at Digital Wildcatters are bringing together some of the best and brightest minds in energy. And it's not just oil and gas. They're going to have people from the renewable space, uh, people from the battery side, uh, geothermal, hydrogen, all the different tech that's going on right now in energy. They're trying to bring everybody together, fusing them together into one amazing event. It's basically going to be a big party with networking, speakers, content, and lots of great people and discussions. If you want a discount on the tickets, you can use the code MAX, that's M-A-X, and that'll get you $100 off. And I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can check it out. This episode's guest is Mark Mills. Mark is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. He's also a strategic partner with Montrose Lane, which is an energy tech venture capital firm. Mark's been around for a while. He served in the Reagan White House in the science office. And he's a guy that cares deeply about the facts when it comes to energy. This episode, we discuss the widespread energy misinformation being spewed by the media and by politicians. We talk about the energy transition and what's real, what's not, what's actually working and what's just marketing. We dive into some of the issues facing renewables, electric vehicles, and a lot of the myths that you see being thrown around by people that are advocating for those technologies. And lastly, we talk about when it comes to energy, the narratives tend to dominate but the facts still matter. Hope you enjoy the show. Mark, welcome to Talk Energy. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. Virtually, by the way. Yeah, virtually. (laughs) I know. We got to do them that way. I'm in Oklahoma City. It's not easy to get guests uh, in person all the time. So I do a lot of them like this, but big fan of your work and love your writing. I've been following your stuff for years. So excited to have you on. For people that don't know who you are, just quick background on yourself and then we'll launch into it. Well, since everybody has access to the magic Google machine, if they put my name in, they'll find out more than they ever wanted to know. But I'm a senior, <laughs> I'm a senior, I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University, where that honorific allows me to hang out with very smart people uh, once in a while, give a lecture maybe once a year. And uh, I'm also a partner in a uh, energy-centric venture fund. We invest in software in the energy business, and that means dominantly oil and gas, Activity because it's the biggest part of the energy business, despite the media claims otherwise. So, yeah. all th- all three flavors. So, I work in the policy world in the Manhattan Institute, and I work in the uh, real uh, real world, if you like, of venture. And I do some. Uh, I'm a I'm a co-founder of a of a laser company. In fact, that is uh, producing next generation lasers. But I can't take any credit for the uh, engineering physics. Just have just having the insight to, to know that it was cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, for people, I will put some of your links to your stuff in the show notes for people to check it out. And first question I want to ask is because you're so good at articulating a lot of these things in the energy world and your uh, reports that you've done are very great. People can go out and read some of these white papers. But 
to me, knowing what I know about energy, when I look around, I see just so much what I would consider like misinformation. Uh, why, how come it's so hard, in your opinion, uh, for the facts or the truths to come out in the energy world? And why are we just constantly bombarded with things that uh, pretty easily yeah. can be debunked, but people portray them as facts? Well, we've, we've, we've entered into uh, a world in which the world, word misinformation has been appropriated by a lot of political activity. I, you know, it's an interesting question. The why do people have trouble getting facts is uh, it's, it's a challenge in every area of technology and science, especially the more political the subject becomes. And a lot of things do become political, which is not a bad thing, by the way. I mean, if it's political, it means we're debating it and debate's good. Uh, because that's what we do in democracies. Only in autocracies do we not allow debate. So I'm not a huge fan of shutting people down that are trying to articulate a view, even if I don't agree with their view. And you want hopes that it gets reciprocated, but not always. I think that the challenge to answer your question is that uh, an awful lot of what people want to have happen, they feel it has to happen, for whatever reason, political, social, uh, uh, beliefs, environmental beliefs, uh, is, you know, people have noble goals. They want things to have happen, but they don't understand as much as they think they do about the facts. And then you have to ask yourself how people get facts. Where do you go look for information? Do you trust the sources? These are these are not trivial problems, by the way. They're real problems in the, in the scientific community. The What's called the reproducibility problem in science and studies it's very serious right now. You know, you see a news report of a study that claims X or Y about a technology or about health or about social issue. You know, the studies, right? And uh, and, they may, and the studies are often real and they're not intentionally r- wrong or flawed. Uh, that that does happen. There is corruption and graft, and there are bad people in the world. But the biggest problem is not that. That's a problem. I would say in most areas, that's the smallest part of the problem. It's that people are just make mistakes, they're, or they're just wrong, or their their study or research is ideologically driven, and you sort of have to un- unbundle it. So, long way of saying it's it's uh, <laughs> that it's very hard uh, to get some facts. Others are relatively easy in the in the age of Google. And I you know was only half joking about using the magic Google machine. If somebody says you know, they believe that we get lots of, of our energy from solar power. And if you do surveys with Gallup, you'll find out that the majority of people think that we get somewhere between a quarter and a third of our energy from sun and wind. And of course, it's about 4% of all of America's energy, about 3% of the world's energy from wind and solar combined. You can learn that by just Googling and finding a government source, whether it's our Energy Information Administration or the International Energy Agency. You could find that fact. You don't have to believe somebody's claim that we're get in, getting so much energy from something. Just look at the facts. And then when you hear claims that, oh, well, you know, the transition to away from hydrocarbons is accelerating. Well, it is accelerating from a very small number, but you can find those numbers. Again, they're not mysterious. That That's the easiest one. But then when somebody makes a claim that, you know, we're going to ban electric car, uh, conventional cars and have only electric cars, in a, you know, California, a lot of several governments have made similar proposals around the world. And, and people say, well, when I say it's not going to happen, it's not a it's not a political opinion on my part when I say that. But people interpret it as a political opinion. You can then you have a much more complicated job, which is, OK, what would it take to make that happen? 
how many cars would have to be built, how many batteries, how much copper, how much lithium, how much cobalt, manganese. When you do that research, it's more complicated than just Googling up you know, the, the answer, the, could you make that many electric cars? You have, to, you have to know what questions to ask. And a lot of people don't know what questions to ask because they're being sold a, a sort of a bill of goods, if you like, by, by people who have an agenda, um, political or otherwise, or personal business agenda. And they may not know the facts themselves. They believe things that aren't true. So, hence, things like what you do and I do as well. I have a podcast where you just try to, you try to talk to people or have a monologue and illuminate facts, send people to primary sources. But it does get painted, as you know, broad brush by if you tell people that you're not going to abandon oil, gas, and coal very easily and for a very long time, you quickly get accused by some people as being a shill for the oil and gas industry or right. you're a climate denialist, all these other invectives, rather than on what basis do you make that claim? Yeah, oh, 100%. I, it's, just, it's one of those things where there's a lot of marketing mixed in as well. To your point, you've got information coming from different people that either have an agenda. You know, people say, I work in the oil and gas industry, and they're like, well, you're just promoting your marketing, uh, yeah. your products. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, I don't really need to market them. People use them because it makes their life better. I don't have to market natural gas, really. I can just, you know, people want to buy it because it, uh, it works yeah. for them and these things that make their life better. So do you think I've really spent some time kind of studying the history of energy transitions and trying to figure out what that word means yeah. and looking at humanity, we had fire and then, you know, inanimate prime movers and then you had the steam engine and coal and liquid hydrocarbons and nuclear. And you see these transitions and they're typically like trans revolutionary, they transform humanity. And then you hear the term energy transition. Now people say we're going through an energy transition are we really going through an energy transition or is that just marketing slang that's uh, getting thrown around? Well, you know, it sounds like a cop-out to say it, it's both. <laughs> and the reason, the reason it's both, uh, it's like all, all things, you know, the boundary conditions that we have to define our terms. How, how long are we talking about? So when someone says we're going through an energy transition, to your point, it took um, half a century when the first beginning of the first oil wells to having oil supply about 25% of the world's energy. It took a half a century. Yeah. And there were no subsidies for oil drilling. There was no a program requiring people to drill oil wells. So it's, it's, to your point earlier, there was a demand for the product because it was so valuable. But set, set aside the subsidy argument, the, the, the word transition suggests you replace the old with the new. And I, I sort of reject the word. There is no energy transition except in the sense of the share of energy supplied by the old as new stuff comes along. What we get is transformations in the shares of the ener of energy sources, prime sources, uh, as new as new ways of producing energy are, are discovered and developed. So the transformations, to your point, are pretty obvious. I mean, the age of wood and muscle power dominated human history. Uh, we use biological stuff. To either burn it, uh, we did use we did use wind and, and moving water starting in the uh, Middle Ages with windmills and watermills. That was a big deal, and there was water power in the Roman times too. It wasn't like it's a, a new discovery, but you know, let's just take wood as an example of the transition. If we were having a transition away from wood, would we would we wouldn't be using wood anymore? I mean, if <laughs> if in our era we've transitioned away from the era of wood. Would use to be gone, except it's not. So 
the world still uses lots of wood for energy, more than most people realize. In fact, if you go to the IEA data, uh, BP data, whatever you know, data source you like, you find out that as of last year, burning wood supplied almost three times as much energy to the world as all the world's solar panels combined. Wow. So burning wood is still a pretty big energy source. But we did make a transition, obviously, where wood and muscle power and uh, you know slavery, frankly, in, in, you know, in, imprisoning people, provided the majority of the world's energy. Now it's you know a couple percent of the world's energy. That's a transition, but it, we didn't abandon the use of wood. And that transition was affected essentially by the advent of coal, as you know. And uh, coal didn't eliminate wood burning. It just allowed, because it was so much cheaper and better than wood, it allowed the economies to expand and more energy to be produced. I, that's a long it's a long preamble to why I object to the energy transition, because it is true that at some point in the future, we'll pick a time frame, 50 years, that kind of time frame, the share of the world's energy coming from combusting hydrocarbons will be significantly lower than it is today. It's inevitable because nuclear energy will finally uh, get its day in the sun, no pun intended. Uh, we, will, we, we will have better batteries by then. We don't yet. We'll have better uh, technologies for uh, distributed solar power on uh, you know, edges of grids and stuff by then than we do today. Lots of other stuff will keep adding to the energy picture. So hydrocarbons share... We'll keep going down, uh, but doesn't mean the absolute consumption of it will necessarily go down <laughs> any more than the absolute consumption of wood and coal have gone down because the world will be a bigger place, more people, more wealth. So this transition language has embedded in the dialogue the idea that that is happening. I'm not naive. The people who are proposing this want it to happen. They're saying we should stop burning hydrocarbons obviously because you emit carbon dioxide when you <laughs> combine car hydrocarbons and oxygen, right? You, you emit carbon dioxide. They don't want that. They like us to emit zero. And so that's obviously the plans that people are putting forward. So they want to affect the transition away from using hydrocarbons. My point is that that in two, in, in two buckets, that transition is not happening. There's no evidence of it happening at the scales they're describing. And Separate from that, I, I'm, I've written, as you know, and said in many venues, it's not going to happen in time frames that have any meaning. It's just that the physical evidence that you could do it is just not there. Right. I've heard it been I've heard it be been said by people that are in the space trying to either raise funds, have venture capital for energy transition type funds that, oh, the world wants this. Like the ship's already sailed. You're not going back the other way. Everybody wants this. Is that true? Does everybody really want it? Or is it just a certain subset of people in kind of the Western world? I mean, there's still a lot of people that don't have access really to much, if any, energy. And they're in the, the numbers in the billions. So is this something that's just kind of a fad in the Western world? Or do you think it will really be global? Or to your point, there'll just be more people that still want hydrocarbons in the future? Well, the question is, you know, that expression, the question answers itself. <laughs> As you know, I mean, the Western world's about a billion people, give or take, and the emerging markets are about six billion people, roughly speaking. And the difference between the energy used in the 
wealthy nations and that and the emergence economies is enormous, much bigger than most people realize. It's not hard to, to find out how big the difference is. And even if the emerging markets, I mean, they, they consume per capita less than a tenth of the energy per capita in the West, roughly speaking. So even if they only double or triple their energy use and, and use a quarter as much energy as us, you could do arithmetic here and you essentially double the world's energy needs with a very modest change in the quality of life for 7 billion people because in the future there'll be 7 billion, not 6 billion without you know the population growth. So uh, it is a... It, it is a um, a political goal of the West that is not echoed in the emerging markets. They're pretty candid. I mean, it's the, pre the presidents, leaders, prime ministers of all the nations that are emerging markets, including the autocrats, <laughs> all make it clear that they need a lot of energy, they want it cheap, and they tend to use a lot of hydrocarbons. Uh, they're not stupid. They look at the West, where we're rich, and we can afford to build lots of windmills and solar arrays. But the claim that they're cheaper than hydrocarbons, if it were true, I mean, that's the claim. If it were true, you don't have to convince anybody in the emerging markets to, to build windmills. I mean, right. they want the cheapest form of energy. So there's, there's oddness to the argument that's being made that it's cheap and somehow the oil companies, for example, are preventing African nations from buying windmills. I mean, if, if there were a really cheaper way to make electricity than burning natural gas, they wouldn't be buying natural gas and building gas turbines. They wouldn't be buying oil and putting oil diesel generators in. There's no, there's no impediment to that in the markets anywhere in the world. There's no giant conspiracy that prevents those markets from using it. So, it, And again, it's, we know why this is being promoted. It's because the West believes that we have to do this, that there's a climate change thing. Well, do most people want this? Well, the, the polls in the West are kind of, you know, are kind of conflicting. And you, you doubtless read the polls. You can look at Gallup polls on this and Pew polls. Gallup's pretty good. If you ask people this question, including Republicans, not just Democrats, do you think the world, you know, the government ought to do more about climate change? We ought to have more wind and solar. You get overwhelming majority saying yes. That's what they'll, they'll say that. I mean, there's lots of polls to show that the claim made by the transition advocates that people want this. And it's because they believe something that's not true. They believe that it's cheap or cheaper or both. And if you ask a different question... Gallup does this all the time. They have a monthly tracking poll. For those who don't know this, just get Google Gallup track, monthly tracking poll. And they, it's a very useful poll. And they've been asking it for, I think, 30 years. Every month they ask a question, not do you want something? What are you most concerned about? It's an open-ended question. And they get lots of answers and they group them in the you know, environmental, economics, social uh geopolitical buckets, right? And you can, might imagine that people are more worried about war with the invasion in Ukraine. But the single most common answer uh, when you ask people the open-ended question, you don't prompt them with, are you worried about climate change? Do you want more windmills? The most common answer is, and it has been for, for decades, it's almost always one of economy, inflation, jobs. It's a mix of economic issues. And right now, the tracking poll, after 20 years of what I would call propaganda on climate change, but other people would call it informing the public. People believe climate change is real. The polls show that too. They don't discount that at all. But climate change does not come up in the top 20 when you ask the open-ended question. It's not in the top 10. Mm. It's way down at 15 to 20 or lower, depending on the month you, you ask, as a concern that's volunteered by the average person. And this, 
this hasn't changed very much. It you know moves up and down a little bit. So the this is sort of the conflicted part when you know people will say nobody wants nobody believes in climate change. Well, of course they do. They actually they believe it's real, but they don't believe it's real enough that it's threatening their life to make it the number one thing they worry about. There are people who believe that, but they're a minority. They're a tiny minority. Yeah, it's like if you ask the people in the slums of Mumbai or you know somewhere in Africa with their energy poverty, what where it was at on their list, it'd probably be non-existent. <laughs> um, there's plenty of people in the world that have a lot of things to worry about uh, that aren't in a hundred or a thousand years from now. And something that I struggle with, it's like we can't take care of the people we have today. It's like let's focus on you know if we can't get that right, I have a hard time thinking we can get it right in a hundred years or however many hundred years from now. And, but what I feel like, though, right now, and I've read this recent paper you did, uh, The Energy Transition Delusion and Reality Reset, and I think the reality reset is uh, the important part for me in that is that right. it seems like things are changing. I mean, this energy shock, as you've described it, it's a combination of things. You had COVID and then this war in Ukraine. You also had a lot of policy errors that kind of led up to this as well. Do you feel like the shock that we're going through now was inevitable and these events just brought it quicker? Or just your thoughts on... Uh, are people's perceptions changing now, given the backdrop of what's happening, uh, particularly in Europe? I think some people's perceptions are changing. I mean, it's pretty clear some are not. But we've seen that some of the reactions that people have had to the price escalations and the challenge that Europe has, in particular because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, the reason I use that title is that the to your, is that the, there's a very serious consequence to the energy plans that have been put into place over the last 20 years in Europe. They would not be facing the problems they're facing now if they hadn't done what they did. And what they did was finance lots of wind and solar installations on the backs of cheap Russian gas distilled to its essence. That's what they've done. They haven't abandoned hydrocarbons. 70% of all Europe's energy is still hydrocarbons. They just abandoned a lot of their domestic production and financed the extra cost for wind and solar on the basis of cheap Russian gas with the dependencies that created. So now now they're scrambling to get gas from elsewhere. And that's why the price spike, because a lot of people obviously chasing the same last barrel or last, you know, MCF causes in every commodity market these price spikes. And Europe is in the process of deindustrializing. Half of all their fertilizer plants closed down. I think a third of their metal refineries are closed down. Uh, England faces the prospects for 60% of all its manufacturing closing this winter if energy prices stay high or go higher. So this is an existential event for the industrial sector of Europe. Whether it recovers it from it or not and reindustrializes will depend on how long this lasts, how long the prices last. And that'll depend on the geopolitics of uh, the war. It'll also depend on how cold the winter is. So there, So I think... There is rethinking, but I don't think the rethinking is that much in the public space, the political space. Uh, there's not a lot of people changing their public stance. Some are. The new prime minister of the United Kingdom has said that they are going to remove restrictions on uh, North, North Sea oil and gas exploration development and remove restrictions on trying to get hydraulic fracking working in, in the UK. Uh, all that stuff takes time, but it's good, it's good to have the progress. So the, obviously there's a rethinking. Germany is rethinking on what they're doing, but not what they're saying so much, right? Which means right. behind the scenes they're rethinking. They, they're burning more coal. Right now, the, most, the, highest, the biggest share of electricity in Germany right now is coal. Coal. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. huh? Right. They kept the old coal plants around. They didn't shut them all down, so they're burning lots of coal. 
and then natural gas. Those are the two big primary fuels. But they they are building LNG import terminals like mad all over Europe. They're uh, rerouting and uh, gas pipes, rerouting the flows and gas pipes. That is uh, increasing their um, supplies, uh, storage for gas and oil. They're refiring gas boilers with oil to free up gas supplies for electric generation and home heat. So these are all um, a nod to the real world of what needs to be done to be resilient. So it's not a one-time event. You know, your question whether or not this was inevitable. It was inevitable. Not that Russia would invade the Ukraine and cause that disruption in gas supply. There, there are a hundred different things that could happen that will interrupt energy supplies, both natural disasters, errors, you know, accidents at power plants and pipelines, and of course, you know, human disasters like wars. They, they over a period of decades, all of those are inevitable. All of them will happen. So you build energy systems to be resilient, to take into account the, not the possibility of, but the guarantee that there will be a challenge to the supplies of the system. And you still have to supply energy to citizens and businesses. So the energy system we've built in the last century has been remarkably uh, capable of doing that. Not perfect, because the 73 oil embargo and the 79 oil price spike from the Iranian embargo both caused massive global shocks, but they were short-term shocks because the world was pretty resilient. And it was also about oil primarily, which is, as you know, much more fungible. You can reroute oil supplies. Germany and the rest of Europe have been pretty much able to replace by you know different uh, trading arrangements the oil they're getting from Russia, most of it. Uh, although, ironically, some of it is oil flowing from Russia to Indian refineries. Okay. Turned the diesel fuel and shipped back to right. Europe instead of having Russian oil go to Polish refineries and make diesel fuel. I mean, that's the trade that's going on. But you know, oil's fungible, whereas natural gas is is harder uh, because it's just, as you know, technically harder to to store it. And most of the flows into Europe are in pipelines, not in not in you know in tankers. So uh, there's a I think there is a, that's why I call it a reset. I think there is a, there's a reset. In short-term actions, whether they're translated into long-term actions or not, is you know you know the expression the jury is out on that, and the the environmental community that hates oil, gas, and coal are very aware that the potential for these short-term actions to become long-term actions is very real, and they don't want that. They don't like that. And they've said it. It's not it's not a mystery. Lots of lots of articles by environmentalists have been published pointing out the danger. You know, in air quotes of building LNG terminals, because once you build them, you'll be, quote, tempted to use them. I mean, right. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, well, it's interesting to see the policy uh, makers' reactions to all this stuff. You know, some of it is more you know, what I would consider grounded and sober and being realistic. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those people were already saying, the ones that are saying that now were a lot of them previously saying that. Maybe they're saying it a little louder now. You're also seeing just kind of a doubling down on some of these narratives. You hear things like... Uh, in the U.S. saying the way we avoid what happened in Europe was to, you know, continue to invest in green and renewable energy. Right. Uh, you see it in Europe as well. Like this would have never happened had we just had more renewables. But if you, you know, think about the energy security aspect of uh, energy and where it comes from and how you source it and talk a little bit about, you know, people think renewables, the sun's shining, the wind is blowing. This is this free energy that's just here. But where are a lot of those products made? Aren't these incredibly complex supply chains? Is it really more energy secure to be able to uh, rely on these things? 
Yeah, no, it's, you, again, you know, you framed it absolutely correctly. The energy security part is obvious. I mean, that's the Russia situation, but it, it doesn't have to be Russia. I mean, it, history has the other oil embargoes. Uh, the, the, the security of supplies for critical food and fuel is beyond obvious important to societies. You can't operate a society without food and fuel. People literally die or freeze to death or, you know, it's just you have to make food with fuel to make fertilizers and to, you know, harvest crops and move food around. You need you need to provide fuel for the whole society. So security does matter. And so then the question is, how do you provide the security? I mean, at what cost? Because money matters too. And how effective is it? So I, there's two things that matter here. One is the switching from oil and gas to wind and solar, which is really what the story is about, right? And coal, uh, oil, gas, and coal to wind and solar. No, if you look at the plans, the forecast for the quote energy transition, they're entirely anchored in wind and solar and batteries. That's 75% of all the net growth in energy supply that's in these forecasts are all associated with wind, solar, and batteries, not hydrogen and magical stuff and biofuels, it's almost all that. <clears throat> so you want to know, is that switch strategically better? Because people say the obvious. The, the wind, you can't shut off my windmill. If I have a windmill in Germany, the Russians can't shut it off. That's true. I mean, it's, yeah, and that, that's not nothing, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's actually important. So you, you'd want to know the answer to two, two questions. If you're proposing to double down on wind and solar as a matter of security is, all right, how much would that cost me? Because it matters, because money matters. And and is it, in fact, more secure in the long run? So on the latter, it's easy to answer. Given the sourcing of materials to make wind, solar, and batteries, we know it's a very simple fact that those renewable machines are not renewable. I mean, machines wear out, so no energy source is, in fact, quote, renewable or free. You have to build machines that wear out, and you have to replace the machines, whether it's oil and gas or wind and solar. So you'd want to know where the materials come from to build the machines. And it's essentially all the critical energy minerals, all the metals, the, all the cobalt, nickel, copper, especially aluminum, not just lithium, and, and um, uh, which is, you know, obviously important for lithium batteries. China has uh, a huge market share in producing the refined materials, including some of the components. Their market share in supplying the critical energy minerals and materials for wind, solar, and batteries. Their market share in that in that domain is double OPEC's market share in oil. So they have a very big market share. Will they cut the world off? I, you know, if I were guessing, no, I don't think so. But we don't know. Would they use that leverage in the future for geopolitical reasons? Why, why wouldn't they? I mean, we do. We use yeah, our leverage. Right, yeah. So everybody uses leverage in, in the soft power world. They'd be crazy not to. They've already used the leverage uh, in rare earths, which is part of the picture. Then there's the economic question. If we had just built enough windmills, we wouldn't have to have the Russian natural gas. We should have doubled down, people say. Okay, you could have built more. But obviously, it's beyond obvious. You have to store the electricity that the windmills produce. You can't store extra windmills because if there's no wind. You're not making any electricity, so you have to store the product. Storing electricity is really hard, even though people are very excited about lithium batteries. To put this in context, what Germany and Europe have done is they've accelerated their storage of natural gas in anticipation of a potentially cold winter. And so what they're doing is what we do in America with all mature economies do. You try to have in storage 
one to two months of annual demand of oil, gas, or coal to take into account unexpe- you know, unexpected higher demands or lower supply. That's, or put differently, you need about 10% of your, of your total demand in storage. 20% is nice. That's the range. So we, Germany right now, Europe, broadly speaking, has close to two months worth of, nat- worth of natural gas in storage. If precisely because, if the, and they hadn't before the, the middle of the war in the summer. They didn't have to. So they rushed imports. They rushed um, reductions in gas demand to industries. They, ru- they closed industries down. They switched boilers off, right, that were using gas, moved them to oil in order to get gas in storage. So how many batteries would you need to store that much energy? Because you'd have to, instead, you could build extra windmills. That's what they said we should have done. And then you have to store that much energy because you could end up with wind droughts. Wind droughts happen all the time. You can have one week, two weeks. You can have weeks at a time of uh, de minimis or no wind. It's already happened. It happened at the end of last year right? in the North Sea. So just to give you a calibration point, to store as much energy as is in the gas storage in Europe right now would require about $40 trillion worth of batteries, 40 trillion with a T, which if all the world's battery factories that now exist operated full-time for 400 years, they could produce those $40 trillion worth of batteries. It's a lot of batteries. Uh, They're going to get a little cheaper in the future? Yeah, but they're not going to go down, even if they went down tenfold, which they're not, that's still $4 trillion worth of batteries. And we'd have to build 100 times as many battery factories as the world has now. So that over a period of just, right, four years with 100 times more battery factories, we could have $4 trillion of batteries instead of $40 trillion. I mean, these numbers are crazy big. And it sort of makes it obvious when you do the math that the idea of uh, matching the energy security that natural gas systems provide with wind and batteries isn't possible. It's not – you could could imagine it in theory in a far future with very different storage technologies than exist today or are imaginable. But this this rhetoric is – well, that's why I use the title delusion. It's (laughs) – it's some things you have to just, you know, call the card as it's played. It's delusional. It's not. It's not possible. It, exactly. Well, and you, like the thing is, is there's so much energy density in oil and natural gas. You have the storages there. It's you know right. you stored up the sunlight from millions of years ago. It's now contained in a way that's really easy to transport for the most part. You have it there. So to your point about the batteries, is like you still have to get that energy density somewhere else. And so there is this massive carbon footprint that's behind the scenes. This is one of the things that always gets me is that how come it's so easy and it just doesn't seem like it's talked about very much at all to just kind of greenwash over the you know, carbon intensity needed. Because at the end of the day, you've got to have that energy density somewhere. If you're going to have it stored in batteries, there's an immense amount of carbon that has to be emitted. So how do, I mean, this is just one of these things that people just, do, they don't realize it. it gets back to the misinformation thing, but talk some about just the carbon intensity in these supply chains, uh, for example, with batteries. Yeah, I think the, uh, I can answer the last question most easily. It's, I, I, most people are just not aware. They haven't thought about the supply chains. They haven't thought about it because, you know, it's not their business to think about it. It's, most of the time, it's a, a revelation to people if you tell them, that you know, you you, don't, you know this electric car's battery weighs about a thousand pounds uh, for the typical electric car that goes the distance that you want, a few hundred miles, and that thousand pound battery is replacing about eighty pounds of gasoline. 
So it's a pretty significant swap. And the electric motors aren't that much lighter than the internal combustion engine. The engine in your car is pretty lightweight, especially in the kind of cars that are comparable. So the big, heavy electric motors are slightly lighter by maybe 100 to 200 pounds more than the internal combustion engine. Not enough to make up for the 1,000 pounds of battery. So to make the battery, to your point, the supply chain, if you, if you look at it going upstream, takes about 500,000 pounds of rock ore. It has to be mined, processed to make one battery. So what you'd obviously want to know is how much energy do I use digging up all that rock, crushing it, dissolving it with chemicals, and then running it through refining processes to make the final refined form of chemical and the refined purified metals, you know, the copper and the nickel, and then the, the lithium, uh, lithiated chemicals, all the things that I need to make a battery. We know that data, by the way, it's, but it's not, we don't know it precisely, but we, we, know, we know the range. It's, it, the range is extremely... Uh, well documented in the technical literature, but the, let's, the, let's reduce it to single car terms because that's the, so the avatar of the transition is the is the Tesla. It's the electric car that we're told it's zero emissions because there's nothing coming out of the tailpipe because it doesn't have a tailpipe, right. and uh, everyone knows that you have to emit some something charging the car. That's no mystery, uh, but you, so, you know you you could imagine because uh, it's doable building electric char car chargers that wouldn't allow you to refuel your electric car unless there was enough wind and solar or nuclear or hydro on the grid. You could do that. Just prohibit people from charging the car when the wind's not blowing. It's doable. Uh, it wouldn't be very convenient, but, you know, yeah. it, it's doable. So that's, you know, that's an argument that's important because, in, in fact, people aren't going to do that. They're going to refuel when they need to as opposed to when nature makes it convenient. But what, you, what we do know is a lot about the physical processes, the big mining trucks and the big refineries to dig up rock, crush it. And we know this. In fact, not only do, do we know it by we, broadly the technical community, Volkswagen and Volvo have both published honest studies at their websites, which I've cited, easy to find by using the magic Google machine again. And they've, they've published studies that look at the total life cycle carbon footprint of their conventional car versus their electric vehicle. And what they point out is that all the energy and therefore carbon emissions elsewhere in mines in Africa, in mines in South America, in refineries in Africa, refineries in Indonesia, refineries in China dominantly, and where China's electric grid is two-thirds coal-fired, all those activities emit a lot of carbon dioxide. The range of carbon dioxide emitted to make an electric car is about 10 tons to 30 tons of CO2 in the technical literature. So... The best scenarios is that when your electric car is delivered to your driveway, it's already emitted 10 tons of CO2 before you drive it. Wow. The worst scenario is 30 tons, because by worst I mean it depends on where the materials were made and mined. You don't know which it is, and nobody really knows because it's an opaque ecosystem, but it's that range. Volkswagen sort of assumes it'll be 12 or 14 tons. In their, they, they assume the best case. Okay, I mean, it's not a crazy assumption to assume you would source your stuff you could choose to source your stuff from the best places you could find. Not everybody could do that, but they could choose to do that. And then they count the CO2 emissions from the, the conventional vehicle over its lifespan compared to the battery one over its lifespan. And what they show on their own, own study is that if you buy a, a conventional vehicle for the first 70,000 miles you're driving, you're emitting less CO2 than the person with the electric vehicle. 
you hit break even at about 70,000 miles and then and then the electric vehicle under those best case scenarios lands up after the 100,000 miles at have a 20%, 30% lower footprint. But if you assume the higher uh, carbon burden for the battery based on what's actually going on in the world, say 24 tons, then what happens is the electric car never saves any CO2 compared to driving a conventional car. And it costs more. It's just you just moved where the CO2 is emitted. You moved it from the tailpipe to the tailpipes of mining trucks and to the exhaust stacks of refining plants. And you've added to that other environmental burdens that while you know, as everybody knows, drilling for oil and gas is requires environmental caution because you have what's called produced water that has pollutants in it, because you bring dirty water from the ground, you have to hold it, you have all kinds of activities that require environmental caution. It's the same true of a mine when you dig up a copper ore and you use sulfuric acids and all kinds of chemicals to dissolve the rocks, you have to be careful of the waste. Difference between oil and gas industry in America, where we make our gasoline, and the other industries that produce the lithium and cobalt and copper and manganese and nickel, they aren't here. They're in countries we don't regulate. They're in countries, in some cases, with very lax regulations. So all the environmental harms, all the environmental challenges, all of the social harms, all the labor challenges infamously child labor in the Congo to get cobalt, which is by some estimates a fifth of the labor forces are you know, children to, to work in these artisanal mines. The, these, these are all issues that are out of sight, out of mind, all exported. So we're exporting challenges, we're exporting pollution, we're exporting CO2, we're exporting money, we're exporting jobs. I mean, it's a pretty bad trade. It, it, and we may not even be reducing CO2 emissions because of the carbon intensity of all the things we've exported, all in order to kill our industry, which creates jobs, which we can monitor, which has a very light environmental footprint by any modern standard. I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy trade. And if people knew the trade, and you then if they knew what I just said, and they believed it because they could find out these facts themselves. And then you say, How, do you want to make this trade? I think most people would say, no, I don't want to make that trade if they knew it. Right. Yeah, well, there's other things we can I mean, the EV thing, you've got hybrids, we've got fuel economy standards. We've already yeah. gotten way better on uh, the amount of fuel used in vehicles. You could do things that are more practical, like if the money that California spent on that high-speed rail to nowhere, if they'd have bought a bunch of Priuses, <laughs> they probably would have reduced more uh, CO2 could, by handing well, out, handing out Prius, Priuses. You could buy the Priuses and give them away to people who can't afford a car in the first place. It would still be cheaper by by a lot, absolutely, and and reduce CO2 emissions per dollar by a whole lot more than the high-speed rail would. But, you know, you're right. And it's certainly if, we, if we're really serious about cutting oil use, which, by the way, I don't object to the principle of government saying we, we've got to be careful how much oil demand grows because it's very hard to fuel the world. A lot of people want a lot of oil. There's a lot, there's a lot more effective ways to moderate uh, uh, the, the oil demand in terms of if you want to incentivize efficiency, incentivize efficiency broadly. Instead of saying the only way you can have efficiency is to buy an electric car. Okay, I mean, if we're really politically, and this is just the nature of politics, uh, that we, we're going to agree to disagree about the climate apocalypse, but we would agree that maybe it's a good thing for governments, I don't agree with this, by the way, but maybe it's a good thing for governments to subsidize more efficiency. Okay, that's not a compromise that's crazy. I mean, I could sign on to that as long as we're agnostic to what the consumer chooses to, to do to buy their efficiency, that is, give the consumer the money to use one gallon less of oil 
if you gave the same amount of money to consumers to use one gallon less of oil per day and gave them the option of doing the, either buying a more fuel-efficient car, changing their driving behaviors, you could let them volunteer to have this monitored. Right? There's lots of – we have lots of tools in the modern era to incentivize people, but we're only using one, which is the bludgeon of you may not drive an internal combustion engine. Right. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> Well, I think that the cynic in me says that these big sweeping transitions allow for a lot of, you know, investment, uh, trillions <laughs> of dollars of new investment and new technologies in these things. It's like if you look at there's a lot of existing technology today, uh, like nuclear energy, for example, yeah. that we could use uh, or just efficiency things like we've already done or switching to natural gas, things like that. But that doesn't require this big sweeping transition. That doesn't require all these new venture funds to be raised and trillions and trillions of dollars of subsidies and investment to go into it. And so therefore, a lot of people would make a lot less money uh, touting just, hey, let's just get a little bit more efficiency to our cars. Let's make incremental changes. Yeah. That would be the cynic in me saying that. Or it would be the realist in you recognizing yeah. that the... The kleptocracy is what it is. It, it, look, everybody has their own self-interest. Uh, that's the nature of, of humanity and businesses. So, if you're if you're an oil a gas business, uh, you have a self-interest, and you can be honest about your self-interest. That's why I know how to produce. That's what I want to sell. Uh, what we what we're talking about is when when governments start interfering with markets uh, and the ability to you know do your work on the basis of a false premise. It's it's one thing. To use the obvious example that people have forgotten about, at one point in long ago history, we didn't we didn't regulate how much lead that would end up in the waterways. And lead's a very a very unpleasant pollutant to have in the water and in the air, and we we decided as a as a society that we should do something about that. Once we learned that lead pollution was pretty serious, uh, those specific things uh, were doable because there was there was no disagreement. There wasn't a didn't require a debate about this. What the only debate was what's the most cost-effective way to minimize lead being in the air and in the waterways. And you know, we recycle lead batteries uh, at about a 95% plus level, and it's pretty cost-effective. And we don't uh, put lead in the air or lead in paint anymore. Those kinds of things. But analogizing that to carbon dioxide is where the problem comes in because carbon dioxide is not like lead. You know, plants don't eat lead. To survive, plants eat carbon dioxide to grow. It's their food, <laughs> so it's a very bizarre, you know, co-opting of the language of, if you like, pollution into this other domain that's now become the the all-consuming feature of, of of governments. Not just uh, not just our government. I think back to something we talked about earlier. What's going on because of Russia's invasion is a rebalancing of the fact there are other concerns. You can still have your your um, views on climate change, and they may not have changed in Europe. But what they what they've done is reprioritize where that falls. Um, to your point of dealing with what people need today, dealing with what your 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 citizens need now, it doesn't mean we don't have responsibility to the future. Obviously, it's a balance, right? It's you know it's it could be very simplistic at the personal level. If you wanted to save money for the future to the point that you starved yourself in the present and you, you would die. I mean, you've got, a, you've got certain, and if that, and I'd be, that's sort of a simplistic analogy, but it's obvious. You, you have to balance your present needs with the future. Governments uh, usually do that. Uh, 
but what we've got going on now is a sort of preoccupation with the belief that the, our only obligation, in effect, is to the future and not to the present. Meanwhile, right. we've got all this poverty around us in the world that can only be pulled out of poverty with cheap energy, not expensive energy. Well, speaking about expensive things, you know, inflation's raging at a 40-year yeah. high. You've got uh, Russia, who's making record revenues, even though their production's down. Right. You know, there's this kind of counterintuitive thing here. And then there's also this claim that I hear a lot is that the quickest way to transition is a rapid elimination of fossil fuels. I think there's a problem with a lot of those things that could be solved through, and I'm leading you here like I have on a lot of these questions because I think we agree on a lot of things, but there's a problem that could, you know, there's something, a solution that could solve a lot of these problems. And if we had a lot more fossil fuels, uh, wouldn't that help things like inflation? Wouldn't that actually help things like making batteries cheaper? I mean, yeah, it just yeah. seems like if they sure. really wanted to, there's solutions here, but I don't think there's political will uh, to say, you know what, we actually need to increase and ramp up our fossil fuel production. Well, I think that, the lack of political will in supporting increased uh, production of oil, gas, and coal is still anchored in exactly the same things as most politicians on both sides of the aisle, who, or let's just say, skeptical of the transition, don't want to don't want to have the climate change argument. They don't want to do that. Uh, they don't want to do it because they they look at the polls and they see the poll I cited earlier. People believe it's real. Something should be done. And they don't want to have the, the nuanced argument. They just want to have an easy answer. Well, we're going to we'll do this. I'll extend the windmill uh, tax credit or, you know, require people to buy, extend the credit on buying an electric vehicle. It's, it's an easy political comeback. So it's sort of an endemic challenge we have in politics. But in terms of the question, not the political question, of those who say we have to accelerate our abandoning oil, gas, and coal to get to where we have zero, this is a, just come back to doing... The math, as they say, if we wanted to go from today to 2050 and and eliminate, replace, assume no new growth in energy demand, just replace our current usage of uh, hydrocarbons, you can do the math on what this would require. Uh, we could put it in nuclear power plant terms since people, right. you know, no nuclear power plants can be built. So a big nuclear power plant is 1,000 megawatts. It can supply electricity for about a half million people. So if you imagine in energy terms what it would take to use, say, nuclear power to replace all hydrocarbons or power plants equivalent to that, you'd have to build one new nuclear plant every single day from today until 2050, every day. Or if you put it in windmill terms, not counting the batteries, but we can add that too because you have to because... Nuclear plants don't need batteries because they run 90% of the time. Windmills run a third of the time. So you have to build three times as many of them and batteries. But you'd have to build something on the order of a thousand three megawatt wind turbines. Three megawatt wind turbines are the size of uh, the Eiffel Tower. So you need to build a thousand of those a day for roughly 30 years. And on top of that, you'd need to build several gigafactories battery production a day as well for the next 30 years to produce enough batteries. So that's what it would take to eliminate hydrocarbons. You know, you look at that kind of numbers, it doesn't matter what power plants you plug in. You, you could you could say without hyperbole, it won't happen. Yeah, it, it won't happen because it's not happening and it can't happen. The world is not building at that rate, nor can it right now. Right. 
Yeah, it's uh, when you put it in those terms, it's kind of staggering uh, the amount that it would need to be. But, you know, you look at the money being spent on a lot of different things. And I think that it seems like now nuclear, there's a shift. You know, for the longest time, these environmental activist groups, uh, you know, and I've actually talked to some recent people on the podcast that used to be a part of these more hardcore extremist groups. And now they've kind of uh, turned their back on them and they're more pro nuclear. And what turned them off was the fact that they really weren't interested in anything but solar and wind. They were right. against nuclear. Uh, they were then with, they were also against like when it came time to build the solar p- panels and windmills and the transmission lines, they would protest that too. Right. And so some of the people that are really, they deeply care, you know, they're not Malthusian. They don't want the world to end. And they're saying, Hey, look, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Is there, is there a tipping point right now with nuclear energy and will that ever make a renaissance or is it just still going to continue down this path where there seems to be no uh, way to get it done, especially here in the U S yeah. Well, there, there, I think, I think there's a psychological tipping point. There's evidence of that. We'll see how that translates into construction, but I think that's definitely the case to your, your point you're talking to. And I, I do as well to, an increasing number of environmentalists who embrace nuclear energy, but it's still, I think, and this is just anecdotal on my part, I don't have data, it's still a minority, it's a thin sliver of the environmental community that embrace nuclear, nuclear. but they're, but they're, they're, they're growing. Uh, certainly governments are increasingly embracing nuclear. Japan's going to turn its nukes back on. Belgium has announced they're going to build a nuclear power plant. Plus, technically speaking, we've learned a lot in the last half century. Uh, there's probably, if I, if I was picking a number, 50 New designs from different companies, startup and not startup companies for different kinds of different sizes of nuclear power plants. So there's, there's a, and, and by the way, not 50 imaginary designs. I mean, I think every one of the 50 new designs will work. The only yeah. uh, question is whether they will be cost effective at scale. And you only find that out by building them. What hasn't happened yet is we, in, to your point, in the United States and certainly in Europe, we haven't changed the regulatory environment to make it feasible to rapidly build these, these power plants when they get you know, proven. And we really haven't expanded the funding necessary to build the next fleet. of. We're going to have to build prototypes uh, and try them out and see how they work and run them for a little while. And the problem with that, once you state those facts, we know that means that's not going to happen overnight. It's not like tomorrow, we, oh, we changed our mind, we want to build lots of these new class of nuclear plants. The only nuclear plant you can build more of right now are the ones we've already been building, and we should build more of those, but no one's going to do that in America after the experience that happened at Vogel plant uh, and the cost overruns, which is a combination of, we'll call it inexperience in the industry now, having not built any for a while, with the yeah. regulatory environment still being roughly the same. Uh, and even if we fix all that, which we could, the proverbial wave of the pen, governments can change those rules. They can make them easier and faster. Governments could do that. Governments could provide their sort of the regulatory and financial incentives to build lots of nukes. But keep in mind, I mean, globally speaking, uh, about a fifth of all the world's energy goes into making electricity. So do the math. (laughs) The the 80% is not going to be changed with nuclear power, even if you assume you build cogeneration nukes to get some process heat as well. So you take another 10 percentage points. So let's say you want 100% nuclear plus nuclear heat and steam, and you could get third of the world's energy. You still have two-thirds from something else. It's not going to be wind and solar. Assume for the sake of discussion, a quarter of that could be wind and solar instead of today, uh, 4%. 
you're still left with half of the world's energy it has to come from hydrocarbons. So right. no matter what the scenario is, you still have to ask the question, who's going to produce the hydrocarbons? And that's a, a geopolitical e- economic question. And at what price? Which, of course, is a social social question. Yeah, exactly. And you look at the last 10 years, and we had a almost non-existent inflation uh, right. in the U.S. and in the world. And then you also overlay that with the shale revolution. In your paper, you talked about how just how transformative it was. Uh, speak to that a little bit and some of the benefits that we had in the U.S. and in the world uh, from this you know, rapid change in technology and everything that it did over the last 10 years. Yeah, I think, I think people uh, underestimate, including in the, in the industry, the impact of the shale revolution. Whether or not we can do something similar in the future is a separate question that I also write about in my papers, you know. But the first the starting point is to have a, a, a sense of the magnitude of what happened in the past, especially after 50 years of being told we're running out of oil and gas, right. America can't produce, imports are going up, and Congress babbling about uh, energy independence for almost almost a half century, and then we're there. I mean, we're, we're a net exporter of energy, and on net net balance, if we especially if we look at the North American integrated market, the North America, which is the you know it's it's an energy integrated market, is an exporter of energy. We don't we don't net import. We there's obviously trade, but the single most remarkable fact when I started sort of unwinding the data a little while ago. I was struck by a comparison I, I ended up making is that if you think about this, the decade of the shale revolution, roughly 2005, 2007, 2000, just pre-2020, the additional energy supplied to the world in the form of oil and gas from the shale revolution was the largest and fastest addition to energy supply the world has ever seen, you know, full stop, by a huge amount. The, the, the second biggest additional supply of energy to the world that's ever occurred was the expansion of the Saudi Gawar field, the massive Saudi oil field. If you map out the same decade from roughly mid-1960 to the mid-1970s, the rise of that oil, that oil field over that same time period was about 40% less than the total energy supplied to the world from the expansion of the shale fields. Biggest, fastest addition to energy supply the world ever seen. That caused oil and gas prices to go down globally. The consequence of that is obvious. It, by pressuring global markets and gas and oil, in fact, Gazprom lowered its prices precisely because U.S. became an LNG exporter, and they lowered the prices before our first ship left shore in order to preempt Europe constructing LNG terminals. That's what you do. Set aside the malicious behavior of Russia. Just in a market sense, if you see LNG exports coming from America, you want to disincentivize the European customers from buying the LNG, LNG is going to be more expensive when it arrives on the European shores, a gas and a pipe from the Arctic, obviously. So you just lower your price even more to make, to make the spread bigger, to disincentivize it, which they did. Smart move on their part, right? But that forced prices to go down. And what Europe should have done is both. If you think, if Europe is smart, they would have expanded storage and expanded LNG, bought the cheap gas, offset the higher price from America. But anyway, that's what happened. That was consequential. It saved consumers over that decade trillions of dollars. If you do the math on the energy price decline because of America's productivity, the world saved money. world's consumers saved money. Or put in geopolitical terms, money that would have gone to oligarch and potentate's pockets into their war funds stayed in consumers' pockets over that decade. This is a good thing. So 
recognizing how important that was, you'd think what policymakers would now be saying is, is can I do anything close to replicating that in the next decade? And that's that's sort of the question I pose in my paper. That I, I think the answer is yes. And I do think we could actually come close to replicating the magnitude of that growth in the, in the next decade. Won't be easy, by the way. The first round was easier because it's a net new game. But I think I think if we include, as I do in my paper, the potential expansion of offshore in America. Yeah, I know we're not allowed to explore offshore. But that's we're the only country on the planet that does that. So that could be fixed. But if we added domestic shale to domestic offshore, I think the United States could add in the next decade as much energy to the world as we did in the last decade. And that would be transformative on two counts, domestically, economically for us, exports, because it would almost all be exports. We don't need it. And it would be transformative for the world because the rest of the world would compete and drive prices down. And that's That'll make it hard. That's why it makes it hard. I mean, if you do projects that overproduce to supply yeah. to the world, you, you better be sure your project is uh, has built into it an assumption of lower costs, lower sale price in the future rather than higher. Otherwise, you, you know the expression, you'll be SOL when that, that, that day happens when prices go down again. Yeah. No, I love the. That's a great piece right there. I'm going to clip some of that out because it is so powerful that uh, people don't realize, you know, we just went through this time where consumers were benefiting from this. And in an era where the U.S. makes less and less things, uh, we're still really good at kind of the master resource, which is energy. And I think it's been a huge boom for the country. Last question here, because I know we're running out of time, but now we're looking at what's happening in Europe and kind of they're talking about socializing a lot of the energy stuff. And, you know, government here is wanting to do more and more, getting their hands in it. Just your thoughts on government's role in the energy complex. And, you know, we've done a lot in the private sector in the U.S. I think personal property rights here and the right to own minerals and exploit those minerals is a huge reason for why we've been so successful. What are your thoughts on government and energy to kind of end it? And, you know, what, where, does, where do these central planners uh, need to be focusing their time and where are they just messing things up? Well, first, let me, let's, if I may, go back to your observation that America is producing fewer things now than in the past. As, a, as an absolute quantity, we're not. We're still one of the three big uh, export economies in the world, and we actually produce 80% of all the goods that are consumed net-net on an economic basis. We could produce wow. more, and America's governments, both both parties, want to do that, hence the CHIPS Act, right? We want to right. repatriate America's semiconductor manufacturing. But And I think we'll do more of that for supply chain reasons, for political reasons, social reasons. But it... it as an energy calibration point, if we do that, this is kind of, if America were to restore its share of global manufacturing that where we were 20 years ago, not do all of it, just restore it where we were, it's a share, the energy consumed by that manufacturing increase would wipe out all the CO2 reductions and energy savings that are imagined in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is, of course, the Green New Deal. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, it's a big energy issue when you manufacture semiconductors and when you manufacture anything, you, 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 we've exported our energy-intensive industries is what we've done. So. Right. Now, what should government's role be? And, you know, it's easy to distill it. The last, we know this because we have the evidence all over history and all over the world. Bureaucrats are not really good at designing anything, anything, uh, especially things that involve manufacturing or production of hardware. Uh, they're, they're, there's lots of smart bureaucrats that can monitor stuff, you know, tax stuff. I mean, all that, those activities. 
And they're important. The legal things, these are all important things. I'm not denigrating those things. But uh, we don't want our energy systems. We don't want our airplanes. We don't want our cars, our batteries. I don't want things, uh, I don't want these systems that are crucial to life designed by bureaucrats. What's been going on now with the so-called energy transition is that bureaucrats and lobbyists are designing the energy systems as opposed to engineers. Now, politicians and policymakers can set goals. We want cheap energy, we want this much, we want a reliable energy, those kinds of societal goals, and unleash the private sector to meet those goals in the least cost way. But that's not what we're doing. We flipped it around. We flipped over the, the, the we've flipped two things. We've not only moved the markets from goal setting, and even if the markets say, I want less energy coming from hydrocarbons, okay, we could politically agree to that, but let it to the private market to figure out how that will happen, not ordering people to buy electric vehicles or ordering people to build windmills. You could you can set political aspirational goals. That happens in democracies, even stupid goals. And they will find out if they work. But designing the system by saying you have to build this, you can't own that, is the equivalent of having bureaucrats design airplanes, which nobody would want to fly. And that's what we're doing to our energy system. So it's it's a dangerous path. The other thing we flipped is the primacy of what governments for all of history have placed in terms of the order of metrics for energy systems. Energy systems, from the viewpoint of what governments have wanted to supply their citizens, are the same as what citizens want, which is the energy needs to be supplied when I need it at the lowest possible price, and then in the safest way. Yes, people care about safety, but if you have a primacy order, it's availability, price, and safety. All three matter. What this government has done, what Europe has done, is flipped the primacy. They've defined safety as being no carbon dioxide and eliminated from the metric by default availability, get it when I need it, and price. Price be damned. If I have to subsidize it, order it, you have to put up with deprivations, you can't charge your car, you can't have heat, you can't be cool. This is a, a deeply radical in my opinion, deeply immoral flipping of the primacy of what's been in place for all of, uh, frankly, all of human history. Love that you put it that way. I've, I've kind of hadn't been able to articulate it like that, but I've kind of known intuitively that shouldn't we be focused on affordability and uh, and reliability? I mean, those things seem like the things that should matter the most. I mean, obviously, we can't pollute everything and make the world a dirty place, but look around. It's not. I mean, in the developed world, uh, it's pretty clean. Uh, there's not a ton of smog in a lot of these cities anymore. So, you know, we should be focusing on reliability and uh, and affordability, and they're not, to your point. And I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, great episode. I really enjoyed you coming on, Mark. And uh, I will, uh, I'll promote this one because I think you dropped a lot of wisdom in here. But thanks again so much for uh, for making it on the show. Wow, it's great. Uh, thanks for having me, Max. It's, uh, it's really important to preach the gospel of reality. Thanks for having me join you. Absolutely. 